Coming up this hour, we're going to remember the events of 19 years ago on September the 11th, and then we're going to discuss what is the post-quarantine church going to look like. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you joining us today on a rainy Friday afternoon. Hope you're uh, looking forward to a good weekend. As a reminder, find us on Facebook. There on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show, you can find interviews we've done, articles we've discussed, uh, and, and you can weigh in there and give us your opinions on things as well. Same at Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk online at 1160hope.com and get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. We're grateful for those of you who do that. Uh, you can, guys, again, you can go find shows throughout this week uh, if you missed any of it. Well, Ian, uh, for the last 19 years, anytime anybody just says the date September 11th, it brings back a flood of memories and a flood of meaning. Today is September the 11th. Uh, 19 years ago since those tragic events in New York City in 2001. Just wondering, when when you reflect upon September 11th, I thought it was important for us to do some uh, remembering today. Uh, As you reflect on September 11th, curious where you were, what memories come back? What are your thoughts today? Yeah, it's it's hard to feel like any of my thoughts aren't cliche, to be honest, which maybe isn't necessarily helpful, but I'll share them anyway. I was uh, in college at the time, and I remember both of the towers being hit before my first class. I was in community college, so I was at home. Oh, wow. And and it was, I mean, it it shook me to say the very least, but I, I still went to class, and I remember watching it on television, being like really shook up, but also like remembering that I had a couple of big tests that day and so my weird. parents thinking, well, they're, yeah, there's no way they're going to still have those tests. You should still go to class. Cause we, you know, there's so much we didn't know. So I went to class and I, I remember feeling like I was even in a haze, just driving to the campus. And then all of my classes like proceeded as normal. Like we still had tests. We still really? had, and I, yeah, I bombed all of them. I, yeah. like I, the, the more, that I learned kind of throughout the day. And this is gosh, I guess pre smartphone and stuff, but like there was people were kind of updating each other in between classes and whatnot. Um, yeah, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't think clearly. Like it was, it was a very, I remember shaking a lot of the day. Like I was about to go on stage for some performance, like that kind of like not in my stomach. I don't know how to process this. It was a very, I remember a couple of days after, you know, we had, we had planned a prayer thing um, at our, our home church and even like feeling the same sense of like weight and gravity. And, and maybe we can talk about this later too, but you know, in Dearborn where I'm from, Dearborn has the largest Middle Eastern population per capita in the world outside of the Middle East. So that was an added layer of, of tension and social unrest. I mean, I, I saw really dear Muslim friends of mine treated horrifically. I saw people in the days that followed asked to like leave restaurants. I, yeah, I don't know. So it was, it was the day, but then it was also the days and weeks that followed that shaped a lot of things for me. Actually, it was a very, 
It was a very, very uh, unique formative season for me, for sure. Oh man, I, I always forget that the deer. Every time you say that, the Dearborn, Michigan, has that many um, mm-hmm. Muslim population is always mind-boggling to me. And you've explained it before, but that is, I remember. I was out of college. My wife and I had been married probably a year and a half at that point with no kids. And I was a youth pastor and Carrie would always leave before me because she was an elementary school teacher, uh, a PE teacher at the time. And I remember uh, I turned on the TV and the first tower had already been hit, but it was before the second one. And she was leaving and I just leaned out the window and yelled for her to stop because I had to tell her what was going on. Like it was like, this is unbelievable. And then I just sat there, but much like you with your story of, um, going to class. I'll never forget. There was a guy who served in my youth ministry, uh, an awesome guy. And that day we were supposed to go down to Chicago, down to the city to a fundraising golf uh, outing for uh, a local ministry. And this guy needed the money. Like it, it was an important event to go to. He runs an inner city thing down in Chicago. And I still, me and the guy, we talked on the phone and we're like, should we go? Like it's still happening as best we know. Should we go? So we went, And I'll never forget driving down 290, driving on the Eisenhower and looking left and right in traffic. And literally every car we saw, people were just weeping by themselves in their cars, listening to the radio. And and him and I just sat listening. So I I experienced much of the events of 9-11 by the radio uh, Mm. in that guy's car. And then we, we made it to the golf thing. It was at one of those courses in the city, like just downtown. And it was a beautiful blue sky. And then I'll never forget, it was the eeriest thing because you're playing golf, but everybody knows what's going on. And there wasn't an airplane in the sky, obvious for obvious reasons. We were right right by, I think, Midway, and we were right there, and there wasn't an airplane. And it was just this surreal feeling. And like you said, the coming days after that, I'll never forget just, you know, watching every minute of coverage that I could watch. And we had a family member, um, a family connection. A, a dear family friend of ours from my church growing up who he was like the salt of the earth guy, man. His name uh, was Jerry Paskins. And this guy uh, was like a Sunday school teacher. He was awesome. And uh, he was for his job. He just so happened to be in the North tower that day for a meeting. Like he didn't work there. Uh, wow. He just so happened to be in the North tower. And I'll never forget my parents calling me and being like, uh, Jerry Paskins died. They can't find him. Like he was in the tower. And I was like, it made it so personal, <laughs> you know, like, wow. oh my goodness. Like, I cannot believe this. And it added like, cause I'm from New Jersey. I'm from about an hour from New York city. And so there was like that feel of being out here kind of wanting to be home almost like, oh, I want to be in the area. But then yeah. that personal nature of it, it was just craziness. It was just, um, yeah. Yeah, it was it was interesting. What do you remember about the days following? I know for me, you, you touched on a little bit. There was a weird a sense of unity. Like I remember the neighborhood we lived in the second day, everybody just lit candles and put them outside. And it wasn't like a major announcement that was made because like you said, there was no social media at the time. Right. Uh, it was just like, hey, we're all going to light candles as remembrance. And it was just that uh, we had prayer services at our church that we had never done before. There was this sense of unity uh, in our collective grief with like the last minute or so we have, what do you remember uh, the days and the weeks following uh, that stand out to you? Yeah. I mean, certainly the unity aspect, and that's something that I've, I've seen a lot of people post over the years. And that certainly was part of it, you know, America yep. coming together in that regard. But again, like I said, my unique experience growing up in Dearborn yeah. also saw 
some pretty horrific division and yeah. and bigotry and fear. And those aren't the things necessarily that I, I choose to cling to. But it, it is always a bit of an asterisk whenever I see people say, gosh, I missed the days the day after, mm. you know, when we were yeah. truly unified as a nation. I was like, that's not entirely true either, though. And there was a lot that was a lot that was stirred up in, in ways that I think just weren't helpful. I, I remember I, I wrote this a few years ago. Um, maybe we'll just close with this. Yep. The Bible is filled with numerous admonitions to remember. Remember our identity. Remember God's promises. Remember what we've been delivered from. And today we remember again, not only the lives lost, the heroic acts, and the communities forever changed, but we also remember that evil does not own our narrative, that violence does not have the last word, and that darkness has not and cannot exhaust the light. And then I just end with First Thessalonians 4.13. We mourn, but not as those who are without hope. Never forget. And that, that for me is, is part of the, the ongoing challenge. It's not just simply like looking over our shoulder, but also remembering going forward, you know, the darkness doesn't have the last word and the, and that it can't overcome the light. And remembering that I think is, is always important, not just today, but every day. Absolutely. That's well put. That's well put. I would encourage people, if you ever want to read something, an inspiring story from that day, read a, uh, there was a documentary, but also a book called The Man in the Red Bandana that was just so impactful. Yeah. I'd encourage you to do that. So we wanted to spend some time remembering uh, on a solemn day every year, September the 11th. We wanted to start our show that way. Well, coming up next, there was a little sense of normalcy last night. If you're a sports fan, we're going to touch on that coming up here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks again for joining us on this Friday. As we talked about last segment, it is September 11th. It's a day to remember for our nation uh, from 19 years ago. Uh, but Ian, I do want to mention September 11th uh, has taken on a, uh, a large meaning in our household because I want to give a shout out to my son who has a September 11th birthday and turns 13 today. So the last thing I told right. him today was, I'll give you a shout out on the air today, man. So happy birthday to my boy, Jackson. I've got a second teenager. And man, I know your kids wow. are only a year and two years old, but man, does it go fast. <laughs> man, is it crazy. I, yeah, I can't believe it, man. You you posted some photos. I was like, he he's looking, he's looking old. He's looking like a man. Yeah, he wears a bigger shoe than me. He's like, wow. I'm still taller, but barely like it is. He is uh, he is growing fast. So love my boy. Glad that uh, that he turned 13. And uh, you said, uh, I believe you said you have a special birthday in your household this weekend as well. I do. That's right. My wife's birthday is in just a couple of days and uh, awesome. we're celebrating. We're going to thank God for grandma. She's going to come do an overnight with the boys. We're not I mean, we're not going anywhere exotic. Is anyone going anywhere exotic right now? No. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're going to we're going to drive just about an hour or so away get an Airbnb and probably, I mean, it's, it's rainy, you know? So we had some plans for like some along the river walks and that kind of stuff. It might just be Netflix and donuts, which nice. I don't think anyone would be complaining about that. That is one of those things that when you have little, little ones, you're like, gosh, when was the last time we just like woke up and then watch TV in bed? I can't think, I mean, we don't have a TV in the bedroom anyway, but it's just the little things. It's the little things to celebrate. So happy birthday to my lovely wife as well. Happy birthday. And yeah, I can totally resonate with that. When you've got little kids, like it, it could be, it could be a hurricane outside. And if you got away, it's like, oh, this is relaxing. So right, right. Uh, I do believe I checked the weather. I think it might be overcast tonight, but no rain. You might luck out tonight, I think, but 
Well, f- yeah. fingers crossed. If anyone's the praying type and they, uh, <laughs> they they want Katie and Ian to have a rain-free anniversary getaway for 22 and a half hours, we would welcome it. Thoughts and prayers, man. Thoughts and prayers. <laughs> hey, last night, I don't know if you watched, but it was uh, the NFL kicked off last night, Thursday night football between the Chiefs and the Houston Texans. The Super Bowl champion Chiefs uh, blew them out more or less. And uh, it was wild to sit down and not just watch football, but then to have playoff basketball going on while baseball was going on. Uh, and uh, it made me remember, like, just a couple months ago, there were no sports whatsoever. And so to be able to see football last night uh, was was really enjoyable. And what struck me was it really brought a sense of normalcy to listen to Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth and watch football albeit with very few, they actually had fans, but like, you know, 20% capacity or something, which seems strange to me, but they had fans there. Uh, Wondering, A, did you watch the game? But B, uh, I want to have a conversation about this normalcy. How important is us for us to have these feelings of normalcy again? Or does it just distract us uh, from the important things going around and just uh, that we need to be focusing on? So did you watch it? And then uh, how about normalcy in your life? Well, yeah, I got to confess, I did. I did not watch it. My uh, my wife had a, a ladies night last night in celebration of her birthday. And so I was oh, with nice. I was with the, I was with the boys and, you know, Papa Papa's not as good with the uh, the, <laughs> the solo parenting as, as mama is. So that's, that was a lot of a lot of a lot of like hostage negotiation situations. <laughs> Uh, multiple really outfits, funny. right? Yeah, just lots, lots, lots going on. So I, I didn't, I didn't actually get to watch it, but uh, I think, I think sports has been probably in the top five that I typically see in this conversation regarding normalcy, which I think is super interesting because there's a lot that's not normal right now, right. and there's a lot that you know the collective world, or you know, if we're talking just America, could long for in the category of normalcy. I do find it interesting that sports tends to be really, really high on, on most of those lists. That's absolutely true. And for me, uh, I remember it was just one of the hardest things back in March and April when all the sports were getting canceled. And you're, as an outside observer, you should think, what's the big deal? Like, we've got a pandemic going on. But I think it was, like you said, just, you know, the, the sense of sports is a great escape. <laughs> and to have that escape, it at least is for me, by the way, uh, your boys, they like we were just talking about my boy turning 13 tonight. We're like, what do you want to do for your birthday? And he literally said, I want to go out to eat. And then I want to watch the basketball playoff game and the Mets game. And I tear going down my cheek going, yes, <laughs> so, there will come a day where you will get to watch sports because of your boys, maybe or your favorite I can't wait. because of your boys. <laughs> um, here's what I want to ask. What is one or two things that would uh, that would. Uh, that you miss that would provide you with a sense of normalcy? What What are some of the things that still haven't come back where you're like, oh my gosh, this would really help me because it would feel like life's quote unquote, a little more normal. Uh, that's a good question. I think the most obvious tend to be the things that, you know, I did most regularly. I think that if you're talking about stuff that, you know, yeah. most profoundly restores normalcy, going to work, you know, we like we have a big, open office at the yellow box. And so everyone keeps pretty different schedules, but the normalcy of, you know, five, six days a week, you're there in a room with any, any combination of your coworkers and your 
working, but you're also laughing and strategizing and you're grabbing coffee. And, you know, so like that, that whole category encompasses a lot of normal, normalcy for me. Another, another thing that has been strange and, and, and I think you can, you can probably understand this. Like we've, we've not really let anyone babysit other than grandma, you know? So like, Interesting. so in terms of date night, which was something that, you know, Katie and I were pretty diligent about keeping that involved, you know, paying for a babysitter so that we could actually go out and have a proper date night. That gets a little tricky if you have only, only kind of one local babysitter in your, in your arsenal. So that, that's thrown off some of that normalcy. And I think I'd probably say, you know, I, I was, I wasn't great at it, but I had a, a, a number of, you know, small circles of friends that we would meet regularly. Like, hey, third Thursday of every month, we're getting a coffee or grabbing a beer or whatever. And a lot of that's kind of been thrown into a tizzy as well. And so it's not just like, it's not just that I like long to do it again. It's that I, I'm recognizing more and more like how restorative those things were, you know, yeah. date night with my, with my wife or, you know, coffee with close friends or even just being in the same room with the people that you're, you're working with. It's not just like, Oh, I long for more predictability. I think normalcy is deeper than that. I think it's like, Oh, this was like really good for my soul. And, mm-hmm. and after six months, you know, you, you really start to take notice of what, what it's lack has, has done to you. And I think that's probably the three I would go with. Yeah, those are good. I, I think that some of the obvious ones we talk about, all the time, right? We've talked about the lobby of the church or just church in general being normal, quote unquote, or my kids going to school. But I, as I thought about this question, I do miss and wonder when it will ever feel, I'm not sure when it will feel normal again, even when we're allowed to do it, but places where there was an energy of people, right? A movie theater or my son and I, especially, we so often went to professional sports games and just the the buzz of a crowd and being around other people and that kind of adrenaline rush of going to a game mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Uh, going to a crowded restaurant or going to a movie theater. Like uh, it is weird to think about when will that even come back, even when they're like, hey, we have a vaccine or things are, quote unquote, back to normal. You're still going to walk in there kind of like, I don't <laughs> know how I right. feel about this. Right. Um, but, yeah, that sense of normalcy. I, and I you brought up something interesting. Just it's not predictability, but. But when you had that regular date night or those regular hangouts mm-hmm. with friends, then you remove them. There's a loss on your just your weekly calendar or even being in the office with friends. And yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. So NFL proved a little bit of normalcy last night, hoping that it goes well, hoping the NFL season can keep going and uh, we all can start to get back little snippets of normalcy in our lives. Well, coming up next, speaking of the coronavirus, we're going to talk about an article out of the Gospel Coalition Uh, that looks at a book asking, what is the post-quarantine church going to look like? That's next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Again, glad to have you with us on this Friday. And we talked about September 11th holds a lot of special meeting. We also talked about birthdays, but is there, do you have it with you? Any other special things going on September 11th? Any other days that, that September 11th is? <laughs> do I have it with me? Like it's a list I keep in my pocket or something like that? <laughs> Whoa, I, got that I got that list right here, Brian Fromm. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a website. It's <laughs> here. What, the- what are these website things you keep talking oh, about? <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll, we'll talk offline. I'll, uh, we'll do a tutorial. <laughs> I was going to say we'll do a Zoom tutorial, but that might be that might be too advanced. Um, uh, yeah. All right, so a couple of weird holidays. It's National Make Your Bed Day. I have failed at that today. 
Yeah. Have you heard Jim Gaffigan's bit about why he doesn't make his bed? No. He says, I don't make my bed because I'm going to get back into it. That's like tying up my shoelaces after I take my shoes off. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Which is actually pretty brilliant. Uh, It's also National Hot Cross Bun Day, unfortunately. Yep. Uh, And then under the category of weird, I don't know why it's stand up to cancer day. Why is that weird? Why is that's not weird? Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I I actually would have thought I would have seen that more around, but okay. Yeah, that's a tough. I mean, especially I mean, in the United States, to 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 have another serious holiday on nine eleven is pretty tough. That's hard. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Well, we talked last segment, uh, as we've been talking for the last six months about COVID-19, the coronavirus pandemic, but also the quarantine and what is life going to look like as we continue to slowly turn the lights back on. So we always, I always thought it was just going to be one flick of the switch, but instead it's kind of going from a little less dim to a little, a little brighter. And as we slowly open things back up to whatever this new normal is going to be, uh, with that in mind, Tom Rayner uh, has written a new book called The Post-Quarantine Church, Six Urgent Challenges and Opportunities That Will Determine the Future of Your Congregation. Talk to us, Ian, a little bit about this book. Yeah, if you're unfamiliar with Rayner, he's the founder and CEO of Church Answers and the former CEO of Lifeway Christian Resources. And this author doing the review you know, makes makes a point at the beginning here to say he doesn't claim to have all the answers but seeks to start the conversation I would add, I, I think the conversation's already started, but uh, all that to say, I think this is someone with a lot of clout, a lot of, uh, I mean, he's recognizable, but I think he's also shown that he's 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 a good writer, he's a good statistician, like he does good work in helping people think through these things. And the, the author here, the Gospel Coalition, says, the book starts with the practical and concrete, how can we, in this new context, better use our buildings? Then he discusses the digital world. How can we make the most of these new fields and opportunities? He stresses the importance of prayer, dedicating a whole chapter to the ways we can improve congregational prayer life. He makes some significant observations about what the church will be like post-COVID, though I do wonder if it's too early to tell, and I would probably agree. He suggests the church will be more strongly anchored in the local community. He calls this recovering our church address. He suggests that, ironically, we may become more people-oriented. It only took a pandemic to get us back to the core business. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he also makes observations around the future of big box, uh, big box services, large auditorium church experiences. His sense is that even after restrictions have been lifted, worship services will be smaller. Again, though this is certainly true in the short term, I wonder if these conclusions are a bit premature. Rainer provides many real life examples of churches seeking to make changes and better engage in mission. This is all done to, quote, stir our creative juices. No doubt it will do this for many readers, but therein lies something of a danger. I must confess to being a staunch advocate of the basic principles of his earlier book, Simple Church. Usually, pastors need the courage to do fewer things chosen according uh, chosen according to a clear philosophy of ministry and do them well. More ideas can easily push desperate pastors back toward areas uh, not conducive to deep discipline. Rayner seems aware of this risk. He mentions early uh, the need for simplicity and later devotes a larger section to this concern, but is this enough in the context of so many ideas and without a larger ministry philosophy that helps to educate, adjudicate, sorry, <laughs> I can read <laughs> between the endless decisions. And then I'll, I'll end with this. The last chapters on change management are helpful. Rainer comes at this negatively and then positively negatively. The mistakes we can make 
in working for change positively seven key principles for lasting change. He then finishes with nine key changes. In my view, this kind of material is critical. Near the end of the book, Rainer writes, the opportunity to lead change is likely greater than at any other point in our lifetimes. Uh, And he goes on to say, without a doubt, most church leaders have not been trained and equipped for this new season. And he's right in this season of great opportunity, we need all the help we can get. So the article goes on to address a number of other questions that the book kind of points toward. But I'd, I'd be curious to know what you think of kind of his general takeaway, specifically regarding the pastor's need for courage to do fewer things, not more. Yeah, that was the whole premise of Simple Church. I remember when that book came out and it felt uh-huh. like everybody was reading Simple Church uh, by Rainer. But yeah, I think we could run into the issue of uh uh oh, things aren't what we knew before. We have to try all these new things and do all these new things. And I, I do think that there's uh, doing fewer things with uh, with greater depth or better. There, there is certainly something to this. I'm curious. Uh, his his whole premise about just that things are going to look uh, different. Um, how do you feel like? And I'm not looking for any inside info on what the yellow bar or what community is doing or what our church is doing. But just in general, how do you think? What changes do you think there might even be in your church or churches in general? What do you think are going to be the lasting changes for us? I, I think he touches on a couple of them. I think the the localized nature of the church. I think like with our community cares initiative, there's been a a noticeable increase in the collective concern with like my neighborhood and my community and my city, which is a lot of fun to think through with a multi site church. To you know that is that is the strange dance because our campuses in the city look and function a little differently than the campuses in, you know, a city like Naperville and Naperville is very different than Yorkville or Plainfield. So it's not even just city suburbs, you know, even within the suburbs in the city, there's, you know, obviously a number of distinctions. Uh, So like, yeah, thinking more specifically in a localized context, I think that there's a a greater deal of ownership with things like watch parties and small groups. We're seeing a lot of that. I think people are, I've been really, really impressed and surprised by how many people have taken on ownership to invite people to be a part of this. I think they've really seen it as an opportunity. You know, like since this all started, we've baptized like over 80 people at community, which really, yeah, that, that blows my mind. Like people are making decisions for Jesus in the midst of a pandemic. And, you know, again, they're like socially distanced with masks and I think we even facilitated one baptism via Zoom for somebody that found us, but they live in New York. Like there's there's a there's a lot of things going on that I think uh, are opportunities for us to consider. But and maybe another, maybe we'll tackle this another time because the whole second half of this blog here, the Gospel Coalition, is asking the question, "Who's the church for?" And that I know can be really controversial, but I think it's a it's a really really right. important question to grapple with as we strategize for the future. Yeah, and I think for. One of the things that I've enjoyed is, you know, you and I minister in very different sized churches. Just they're just very different, and uh, he gets at that in this article. I think for a church our size, it has just been. You guys were already online doing lots of online stuff, and in good, you know, in many ways leading the charge on that, uh, or at least doing it well, being at the front edge of it. And churches like ours have had to catch up, and I think. That's going to be one of the changes, too, of the new church. Just I think churches of all sizes now are just going to be online. And what does that mean? What does that look like? How do you do it well? Who do you mm. go ask for advice? <laughs> you know, who are the smart people to talk to? Um, I'm not sure without a pandemic that we would have gotten online, like we would have been doing this. But now it's here to stay. And so 
uh, it adds this whole nother layer to how is ministry best done? How do you leverage this uh, versus where is it, uh, where it might have negative influences? It's something that I hadn't planned on thinking through this year. <laughs> and uh, we've certainly been forced to do it. So it looks like an interesting book here by Tom Rayner. Again, I'm on the post quarantine church. You can pick it up, I'm sure, at Amazon, wherever you get your books. And uh, it's going to be a different church. And the question is, yep. uh, in what ways are they positive? What ways, what are the things we need to be thinking through? Well, coming up next, I want to talk about the results of a Pew Research uh, poll about young adults who live with their parents. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. back to the common good am 1160 hope for your life alongside ian simpkins my name is brian Fromm. hope you're having a good friday got a good weekend planned ahead of you we're glad you're spending some time joining us today if you hear this was at pew research at pewresearch.org you're gonna tell us a little bit about it it says this a majority of young adults in the u.s live with their parents for the first time since the Great Depression. Why don't you give us some of the stats here? Why don't I give you some of the stats? It's pretty interesting. This is not something that I thought about all that much, but then when I read it, I was like, well, yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. It says a uh, the coronavirus outbreak has pushed millions of Americans, especially young adults, to move in with family members. The share of 18 to 29-year-olds living with their parents has become a majority since U.S. coronavirus cases began spreading earlier this year, surpassing the previous peak during the Great Depression era. In July, 52% of young adults resided with one or both of their parents, up from 47% in February, according to a new Pew Research Center analysis of monthly Census Bureau data. The number living with parents grew to 26.6 million, an increase of 2.6 million from February. The number and share of young adults living with their parents grew across the board for all major racial and ethnic groups, men and women, in metropolitan and rural residents, as well as in all four main census regions. That that part is maybe the most interesting to me because across all racial and ethnic groups, men and women, metropolitan and rural, and in all four main census regions, growth was sharpest for the youngest adults, ages 18 to 24, and for white young adults. The share of young adults living with their parents is higher than in any previous measurement based on current surveys and decimal uh, decennial. Wow. I am not reading well today. What, what would a decimal census even be? Uh, Very a lot of fractions, right? Uh, yeah. For quarter people uh, before 2020, the highest measured value was in the 1940 census at the end of the great depression when 48% of young adults lived with their parents. The peak may have been higher during the worst of the great depression in the thirties, but there is no data for that period. Isn't that surprising? That seems like something that we would have been, I mean, we were gathering data in yeah, the 30s, but not that one specifically. The share of young adults living with their parents declined in the 1950 and 1960 censuses before rising again. The monthly share in the current population survey has been above 50% since April of this year, reaching and maintaining this level for the first time since CPS data on young adults living uh, arrangements became available in 1976. I'll stop there. There's a bunch more yeah. data and statistics. Do you... Do you find this surprising at all? And maybe more interestingly, what do you think the outcome for this will be a year, five years, 10 years from now? 
Yeah, that that's an interesting part of the question. There was one more interesting number. People might be like, well, when it was the lowest, it looks like around 1960, it was only 29%. So uh, mm. very different come age. Did you ever live at home after college? Before we answer that question, did you, before we answer your other question, did you ever live at home after college? Only only going home for uh, for summers. Right. Right, but never for a long. I never did either. I was, I in, in fact, never ever went back to New Jersey and lived there at all because Carrie and I were engaged out here and got married. So, uh, but a lot of my friends did after graduation. I, did, it's interesting to me, man. I totally get why people go back after college and live at home because people might be wondering, well, why is this? Why are so many people? And I just think it's primarily economic, uh, where uh, especially graduating with student loans trying to figure out where you're going in life. Things are just, some people might disagree. Some older people that might disagree. It's just more expensive right now. It's just more yeah. expensive coming out of college, trying to get a place to live. Like you could just look at the statistics of, you know, housing prices and other things versus starting income. It's changed over the years. And so I think this is primarily an economically driven things. But then you also think pandemic, uh, people probably for security purposes, let's go live with my family. Um, but it is a certainly a cultural shift that's been happening more and more. And now it is peaking and it'll be interesting to see if it goes higher. Uh, what are you did ask? What are the effects? I actually don't know what the effects are as someone who's never lived at home. Like I'm thinking myself, if my kids graduate from college. They could come live at home. But uh, but there does come a point where you were you kind of want your kids to kind of spread their wings and, and go figure out life a little bit. Uh, so yeah, I'm not sure the results. Do you have a thought in mind when you ask that question? Do you what, what do you think the result down the line is of this increase? I I don't I don't really know. I I do know like what some of the other statistics that I'm finding really interesting here said in past decades white young adults have been less likely than their Asian, black and Hispanic counterparts to live with their parents. That gap has narrowed since February as the number of white young adults living with their mothers and or fathers grew more than for other racial and ethnic groups. A little bit down the line, I found this interesting. Young men are more likely than young women to live with their parents, and both groups experienced increases in the numbers and share residing with mom, dad, or both parents since the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak. That, to me, is fascinating for different reasons. I am, I mean, I think, yeah, some of it is economic. Some of it is probably more like what has been historically more consistent with your culture, your backgrounds. Like some families, that's way more normative than for other families and other traditions, other backgrounds. Um, I I do think it's a unique opportunity for potential bonding, I think, between adults, uh, adult children and their parents. You know, a lot of times, like that was that was really tough for me, to be honest. I moved, you know, from Metro Detroit to Chicagoland area, yeah. went to school yeah. and then and then got a job right out of college. So I stayed out here. But there was a lot, you know, in my early 20s, I'm like, oh, I wish I had more FaceTime both with my my parents and my siblings a lot that I I do sometimes feel like I missed out on yeah. because you know like you're a you're still kind of a punk when you're 18 at least I sure was I mean I'm still a <laughs> punk now but 22 23 I feel like I started to really appreciate them a whole lot more I got to I feel like I was able to see uh, some things more clearly through their eyes and their perspective and I think it'll be interesting to see if maybe there's greater unity or affinity between the generations because more young adults have had to spend like prolonged FaceTime with their parents. And I mean, maybe that's just me being optimistic, but I think that could potentially be one outcome of all of this. Yeah. I think there's certainly positive angles to this. Like, and, and my life has gotten interesting because, uh, you know, I much like you, I grew up right outside in New Jersey, right outside New York city. 
and moved out here to go to college and never went back. And so, you know, there was a huge gap, you know, friendships changed everything. Uh, but then my parents moved out here after we started having kids and literally live next door to me now. So there's been like this whole, like I was home away from home, but now we have that, that kind of proximity again. So it has been interesting, but, uh, we love to know your feedback on this. As Ian and I said, we find these stats really interesting and think we have some answers to it, but don't really know. Maybe you've got history with this. Maybe you have thoughts. Go to our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. The first hour is in the book. We're going to start the next hour with a really interesting Facebook post that I saw. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about an interesting Facebook post that I saw. And then we're going to end by remembering September 11th with some words from Billy Graham. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us here on this Friday evening. Hope you got a good weekend you're looking forward to. Uh, Let me just remind you where you can find us. You can find us on uh, Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common Good Radio Show. You can find us online, 1160hope.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. And lastly, get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, We are grateful for those of you who do that. Uh, Let me... All right, Ian, here's what I want to do. I want to tell you about a Facebook post that I that came across my ne- my news feed in the last day or two, uh, or I think it was from three days, two days ago, uh, that has gotten an unbelievable amount of traffic. All right, so I'm going to paint the picture for you. We have it up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, it says this, this Facebook post has has four pictures in it. So I want you to picture four pictures in a square The top left quadrant is a picture of President Trump. The top right quadrant is a picture of uh, Joe Biden. Underneath, so bottom left quadrant, underneath the picture of Donald Trump is a baby picture or a toddler picture of President Trump. And underneath the picture of of Joe Biden uh, is a childhood picture of Joe Biden. And the post says this, both are made Imago Dei in the image of God both of them. uh, And then it kind of spurs us to be praying for them. And so I want to react because this Facebook post has gotten so much traction. And here's why I bring it up, because this Facebook post was written by none other than Ian Simpkins. (laughs) So uh, I would like to hear your thought process. Here's I'm going to cards on the table. I thought it's a fabulous post, but not everybody did. (laughs) And so I would love, man, to hear your thought process behind it. And again, sometimes people are like, is Ian just wanting to promote his own stuff? I do these without even telling Ian. Like, I'm kind of driving the show today, and I'm like, I want to talk about that Facebook post. You didn't even know we were going to do it. So uh, I'd love to know the thought process behind it. Kind of what what were you trying to get at with this post? And then uh, the answer is probably no, because Facebook's Facebook, but were you surprised by the passion of the responses? So talk to us a little bit behind the thought process behind the post. Well, I first off appreciate you saying that this wasn't my choice to talk no, about my own is. post on it our radio is. show. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, a little inside baseball again, there's two different posts I made. The one that you read simply stopped at 
both are made Imago Day in the image of God, both of them. The other post that I made, same photo, I, I included something like, I had a mentor of mine that used to always ask me whenever I was being critical of somebody, have you prayed for this person half as much as you criticize them? Mm-hmm. And I just always found that convicting. So that I think that's the post that probably garnered more opposition, I guess. And part of what I found so surprising about some of people's comments, because they were sort of, I mean, they they ran the gamut. And some people were like, amen, right on. Other people were like, I can't believe you would make this post. I'm really disappointed in you as a community leader. Other people, a little more specifically, you know, would ask questions or make statements like, oh, so you're fine with the policies of this administration or you're okay with baby killing or, you know what I mean? Like things like that. Yep, I'm like, yep, I, yep. I, I didn't, I didn't say any of those things. I, <laughs> yeah. and then again, there was, there's some other threads that were um, much more measured, still disagreeing, yep. but much more measured. And I, I think part of what I found not surprising, but interesting about it all was how, how our assumptions fill in the blanks, whether, whether that's accurate or not uh, people's assumptions about my convictions or uh, what I was willing to stand up for or stand against. And then there's, there's a whole other component to this where it's like, well, obviously it's unrealistic to expect that anyone commenting has seen everything else I've ever posted. Mm-hmm. So there are some comments like, Oh, I'm really disappointed that you haven't been more outspoken about this or that. And I'm thinking, Oh, I've been very outspoken about this or that. Maybe you just didn't see it or you don't listen to the show, which is completely understandable. Uh, I mean, some people, just some of the comments here, some people, I mean, they range from thank you, Ian, for this truthful reminder all the way to, okay, but real talk, that's like praying for Hitler. I mean, yeah, do it, but also, um, but then some really fair questions like Angela asked, what about when you've reached your limit for mental capacity or energy you can give someone because it's toxic to your well-being? I thought that was a pretty interesting question. And then somebody else said, this gets me every time, the Imago Day, even when I'm sitting in a room with someone who abuses children or hurts animals or hits their wife, it gets me every time. So the the thread that I think a lot of people kind of jumped in on, and again, like my buddy Jeff, uh, he texted it me to me before he actually posted it. He said, being made in the image of God is one thing. Keeping it is something completely different. I thought that was interesting. Hmm. Uh, Nathan, who is a legitimate scholar, um, he weighed in and said, uh, this image does evoke an ethical stance that requires a Christ-like response. The problem with your conclusion is that it doesn't consider how this image is viewed by a child locked in a cage in New Mexico who has been separated from his or her parents, juxtaposing Caesar and Caligula to humanize either still ignores the dehumanization of Judean two-year-old boys who were killed by Herod out of fear for his own and Caesar's loss of power. Um, so what I said initially was... I don't disagree with that. There's a lot that my conclusion doesn't articulate, you know, so people are like, well, what this fails to mention, I'm like, yeah, my, this very short post fails to mention a lot of things intentionally. And so I, again, I waited on some of them. And then I, I wrote this today. I said, uh, Hey, everyone, a point of clarification. This isn't primarily a call to criticize less, but to pray more for me. This is as much about protecting my own heart from bitterness as anything. I said, we Christians, especially, have a sacred responsibility to call out evil, sin, and exploitation wherever and whenever we see it. Being a Christ follower means forfeiting the luxury of neutrality in the face of injustice, full stop. I am also ruminating on what activist and theologian Walter Wink once wrote, evil can be opposed without being mirrored, oppressors can be resisted without being emulated, enemies can be neutralized without being destroyed. In my opposition and speaking truth to power, 
I want to always be careful to not fall into the same hate that I oppose. I suppose the question I'm wrestling with is, is it possible to actively and passionately oppose the actions, positions, and or policies of someone else without ignoring or diminishing the God-given sacred dignity of their own ontology? And so then I kind of just thanked everyone for their comments because I found a lot of them really challenging, really eye-opening. And uh, and then again, just to say it out loud, there's a lot of private messages happening as well from people that wanted to kind of continue the dialogue that others maybe don't see on the post. And at the end of the day, I, I was grateful. I was grateful for people's feedback. Um, certainly surprised by some of the opposition or the level of opposition, I guess, yeah. because at the, I, I, at the end of the day, I think I probably agree with them, but they assume certain things about my position or, you know, my theology, which again, I, I kind of goes to show the, the limits of Facebook a little bit. Yeah. It, honestly, the picture, uh, the juxtaposition of seeing that each of the faces that we're used to with their ch- with their childhood pictures, it does it, it evokes an Im- like something in you. Yeah. It's wild to see those pictures, and I thought it was powerful. I just think, man, the call to be praying, even for the leaders or the potential leaders or whatever who we vehemently disagree with on either side, uh, is is part of our call, and it's a difficult one, and and one. It was interesting. I was, in, I was having a talk with someone at church the other day when I noticed they're on a Facebook page called We Pray for Trump. And I told him, I said, I'm really excited about that. Do you think you'll join a similar one if Joe Biden won? And this person didn't even answer me, looked at me like I had three heads. <laughs> like, oh, interesting. Just kind of this look. And I was like, no, I want to cheer you on for praying for our president, but I want to cheer us on to pray for the presidents we agree with and disagree with. Uh, and do that. So anyway, uh, in five seconds or less, do you did you enjoy the conversations that happened through this or do you regret making the post? I don't regret it. I, I enjoy them to a degree. I think there certainly are times where I wonder, like, was that helpful? And and honestly, some of the messages I got said quite that, that I appreciate you raising this this issue that was pretty helpful. So for me, if I can even just get a couple of those, you know, it's, yep. it's usually worth it, but yeah, I don't, I don't regret it. I, I think there's certainly, I mean, I'm still human. Some of the sting of some of those yeah. comments yeah. is still very real, but uh, yeah, I, I think ultimately I'm glad I did. You probably didn't need to hear this, but I really enjoyed the post. <laughs> I thought it was <laughs> Thanks, man. So. I appreciate that. Uh, anyway, as I said, Ian doesn't ask me to go through his uh, Facebook and Twitter pages and use them on the show. I like to do it though. And so, <laughs> That's how that got here. Glad you're joining us today. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Someone that we reference a good deal on the show is actually with us right here via the magic of technology, David Fitch. Welcome to the show again, sir. Hey, hey, always good to be with you two guys. You 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 provide the entertainment for good theology. <laughs> oh, thanks so much for saying that. We'll in, take li- it. in light of that, would you just take a, a minute or two and uh, introduce yourself to our audience in whatever way you see fit? Yeah, uh, my name's David Fitch. I uh, am a professor at Northern Seminary. Our larger campus is in Lyle, west part of Chicago. And I'm a pastor at Peace of Christ Church, which is the Church of the Christian Missionary Alliance, actually a church plant of the Christian Missionary Alliance in Westmont, Illinois. Mm-hmm. And David, we're excited to have you back on. We, we wanted to start by talking about this Facebook post you made entitled Top 5 Fundy Backlashes as Seen in Progressives Today. And we had a great time discussing this. Before we dig into it, I want to know, I'm curious, just why did you write it? What was the purpose to take the time to write this uh, this post? 
Well, you know, part of my job at Northern Seminary is to think about uh, church and, and engaging culture for the gospel. And so I'm always thinking about this, and uh, I am just seeing, uh, you know, several of the topics in that post. I'm just seeing these kind of reverberations on on issues like atonement, substitutionary view of the atonement, purity culture, um, mm-hmm. even science and evolution. I just think uh, the backlash, and um, somehow pastors, somehow Christians got to be able to navigate these backlashes so that we we don't go to extremes and miss the goodness of what what God's trying to do in those various mm-hmm. areas including you know the bible including science including sexuality uh but too often we're caught up in these kind of overreactions how do we navigate right. those so i wanted to write okay. something about that see and this is what i appreciate about your writing too because it feels like more and more facebook and twitter is like a lot of hot takes and mic drops usually is condensed to like one sentence. And you often will write these like long treatises, these long treatments of complicated issues that I don't often find in Facebook. So could you actually walk us through a little bit the, the top five backlashes that you listed in your post here? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, first I just want to say uh, to everybody out there listening, uh, the last 20 years, 30 years, uh, we have gone through massive cultural shifts. The church mm-hmm. Uh, of 1952, uh, if it was retransplanted today, it's just going to face a lot of challenges. And, you know, they're in sexuality. They're the way we look at authority in the Bible, the way we look at um, uh, science, the way we look even at the atonement. There's just no common uh, cultural consensus that made it easier to be in a church in 1952 or even 1962 than today. So whenever the church gets challenged, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, especially in the last 30, 40 years, we, we've wanted to kind of protect and, and defend and, you know, uh, kind of uh, get heavy handed and say, no, it's got to be this way. And we get coercive. And whenever we do that, folks, we don't have a dialogue. There's a backlash. Right, and guys, right. have you experienced that backlash, that defensive kind of coercive, uh, you got to do it this way, threatening kind of, you know, when, when our churches uh, kind of got heavy handed with either sexuality or the Bible is inerrant and you can't say it's got a mistake. Have you experienced the backlash? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's interesting because I tend to feel the backlash more in digital spaces than in person ones, it seems. Yeah. I know for me growing up, I, I, I think I felt it, but never really knew that what I was feeling. Right. And then I remember becoming a youth pastor and, uh, you know, doing the messages about purity or this or that. And I, I felt like I became heavy handed, <laughs> like kind of the, the next wave of it. So yeah, I totally get this, man. I, I totally understood what you're talking about. Yeah. And so uh, I guess what I'm pleading for with pastors, Christians, parents, uh, is we, We need to make space for these questions to be asked, for these challenges to be heard, and then process and dialogue through these spaces uh, as opposed to getting defensive or uh, threatening or, you know, uh, you got to do it this way or you're going to. There's a famous preacher. uh, He's no longer in Chicago because he kind of had some problems. I won't mention his name, but he used to be very heavy. I'm going to tell you how to do it and you need to do it this way. And I'm just telling you people, blah, blah, blah. It's a heavy handed approach 
that I think there's a big backlash to, and it's resulted in progressive Christianity. Hmm. And Dave, I'm wondering, so you've got the fundamental side and then, and then the progressive backlash, does that pendulum in your opinion, just keep swinging back and forth uh, and become more extreme on each side? Or is there a hope that it will land in the middle as there's conversation? How do you see that? Because it sometimes feels like that pendulum just keeps swinging back and forth. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I I go by the uh, the theological stream named neo-Anabaptist theology, Anabaptist theology. Let's return to centering our lives on Jesus, the church, um, who he is as Lord, and and work out work it out from there. Um, that's where I hope we land. But in order to get there, we have to provide space for people who are like in this backlash. So let's just take one example. I talk about purity culture and I talk about how things were changing in sexuality and our culture and evangelical fundamentalists then took some very good historical Christian wisdom, you know, about faithfulness, chastity before marriage. And they added some coercion to it and the rules and consequentialism and and said you got to do it this way and if you do it this way you'll get this and this and this but if you don't do it this way you'll get this and this and and they didn't deal with any of the underlying cultural problems uh with sexuality that was going on and now there's a backlash i feel like there's almost like a rejection of traditional christian sexual norms and values because mm. we're rejecting the coercion that got put into purity culture and the things he did, uh, things it did to women and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you got to make space, folks, these days who are raising teenagers to make space to talk through what's going on. Yeah. Oh, that's right. All right. So that's that's exactly why I want to have you on for two segments, because I want to get a little more into that list, because I think some of the questions that you raise are something that a lot of us can resonate with, regardless of our background. And so. David Fitch, both professor and author of the book, The Church of Us Versus Them, is going to stick around for one more segment here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for you. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We are joined again by David Fitch, professor and author of the book, The Church of Us Versus Them, Freedom from a Faith That Feeds on Making Enemies. And we're talking specifically, actually, about a Facebook post he made, and uh, his kind of title for it is simply Top 5 Fundy Backlashes as Seen in Progressives Today. It's fascinating. David, I'm wondering, can you just walk us through those five a little bit and uh, and what maybe some of those implications are? Yeah, so uh, the first one was the the Book of Revelation and, and how uh, evangelical fundamentalists made that, which is really a great book, by the way, into about, you know, 666, <laughs> government, the rapture, thief in the mm-hmm. night. And, and added some coercion to it, you know, so scare tactics uh, to cause people to be holy and stay away from the world. And I feel like the backlash in that is that many progressives uh, no longer see eschatology as important, no longer see the physical right. return and confirmation of the kingdom as important. The mm-hmm. uh, second one is the substitutionary view of the atonement. <clears throat> I feel like, uh, again, evangelical fundamentalists took some really good uh, – atonement theory tied to uh the reformation frankly and then and then it it really does illumine how god works with our sin and heals us and redeems us and forgives us but they added coercion 
uh, kind of like you're going to go to hell and the wrath of God is going to get you. And the resulting backlash, I feel, is that many progressive evangelicals don't really see the merit of the representat- representative aspects of the atonement. Um, we already talked about purity culture, but, you know, the Bible is inerrant. You know, again, evangelical fundamentalists got defensive defending the authority of the Bible uh, and added some coercion and, you know, said, hey, the, the Bible's inerrant no matter what. Don't question anything about the Bible or its history. And, and there's a backlash there. And you see it all the time with like people like Bart Ehrman who want who are out to prove the mistakes in the Bible and we lose significant power and authority of the Bible mm-hmm. for our time. And then the last one was science and evolution. You know, this actually goes back to the 30s and 40s, but evangelical mm-hmm. fundamentalists took what is really important historical Christian teaching about God's creation, and they added coercion to it when they got threatened by evolution and creation mm-hmm. science. Now I feel like, uh, you know, sci- science became all bad or something, and we, act, we reacted, and now science is just, uh, good, you know, all kinds mm-hmm. of science is good, and we don't trust Christianity anymore. I think those are all backlashes that mm-hmm. went to an extreme, and we need to, you know, center ourselves again in in all the good things in, as part of those doctrines. Right. But um, we need to do a lot of dialogue and presence and non coercion. Mm-hmm. And that, that leads into the, what I was thinking. How do we have a dialogue? How does that dialogue even happen between, as you call them, evangelical fundamentalists and progressives? Usually they talk at each other and about each other. Yeah. How do we get to a spot as a church where those dialogues are even happening? Well, uh, that was not the question I thought you were going to ask. I mean, I think that <laughs> is uh, in the uh, Church of Us versus Them. I talk about how every time there's an issue or um, something that is really important to the church, the church should gather together. There are people who are interested, you know, 10, 20, 30 people and search the scriptures and do it out of mutuality. And I describe in that book Mm -hmm. tactics for doing that, but I'm, I'm more interested in like people who are professors like me, people who are pastors, people who are parents and they Mm got to deal with like people you know, in their teens and twenties and even thirties who are, who are like resenting the coercion of their churches growing up. And you got to find a way to listen and be present and listen to the, uh, cause really, I don't think the backlash is that much about what they actually believe. I think it's more anger and resentment for the way they were not allowed to dialogue and sort through things in their lives. And they felt coerced. I think we got to open that space up first what do you guys think? You guys are younger than me. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's a big heartbeat for us even behind this show was to create space and to have guests from numerous different political and theological persuasions. Because we I don't know that a week goes by that we're not upsetting somebody on either, <laughs> on either side. And that can be a little taxing. I think that's part of why people don't engage in these conversations because it's exhaust. It's tribalism is so much easier. I'm going to only talk with and hang out with and associate with people who think and act and talk and vote just like me. Engagement, I think for a lot of people, they just find overwhelming, which is why I appreciate, like part of what I appreciated even in this comment section here. So Dan White Jr., who's uh, another great writer, he said, fundamentalism is not what we believe. It's how we hold our beliefs. Do you you agree with that? Yes. Oh, I, I so agree with that. And so 
part of the task of Christians today is to be confident in the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the church and in your family and just calm down and listen. Listen to your teenagers. Listen to people who are angry. Unwind what happened there. Allow the Holy Spirit to do the healing work. And then we can sort out what God really wants to do uh, mm-hmm. in the areas of our sexuality or, 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 or how he's going to save us or, uh, you know, what role science should play in our lives. I think uh, that's really what's important. That's good. Yeah. David, I'm wondering, maybe you hear this from students or as a pastor, the people who might say, listen, all that really matters is right doctrine. We just have to get to the truth and get it right. All this talking about it, you know, and in fact, if there's a backlash, I need to tell them why they're wrong. Uh, Could you speak to the person who might feel that way? Just like, nope, I'm standing up for what's right, no matter what, what, you know, no matter what comes of it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so hard when, um, you know, uh, and, and now I, I must confess to everybody, I'm a white male. Okay. And for most mm-hmm. of our time in the United States of America, white people and especially white males, especially white evangelicalism and Protestantism in general has been the, you know, the majority faith. And we were never challenged and it was just easy to think, Hey, this is mm-hmm. the one thing I need to know. And it's never going to change, but actually right. the Bible has been contextualizing Jesus as Lord has been contextualizing for 2,000 years. So we have to give space to find the emphasis and to find the right way to say something, to connect with the new person we're talking to. And so, yes, Mm -hmm. there's faithfulness to doctrine, but then there's faithfulness to mission and engaging people Mm -hmm. in new ways with the truth of the gospel and the Bible and Jesus Christ. Amen. That's so good. All right. We, we only have like a minute or so left, but I would love, since you're not just a professor, but you're also a pastor, would, would you just pastor the people that are listening that are thinking, oh man, this all sounds nice. Sure. Dismantling this us versus them dichotomy and coming together and meeting in the middle. Would you paint, I don't know, some kind of picture of hope or, or vision for like what that actually could like look like in what seems like kind of unprecedented divided times? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, in the church of us versus them, I just talk about how we can meet as local bodies of Christ, even Mm. as small as a group of five to 10 people around a dinner table in the neighborhood. And we can have the Bible right there and we can allow uh, Jesus to do his work. And we're in unprecedented times, really. Uh, There's so many multiple cultures going on. There's so much um, strife and defensiveness, even anger, and trying to hold on to the past. And Jesus is Lord in and through the struggles and the antagonisms, and he wants to work to make himself clear. You can be safe and secure and faithful by just hmm. like, like letting him work, wind, chilling out, and listening. And uh, it's just a posture <laughs> of faith and trust that God can work. Yeah. And awesome. I love that. I love that. David Fitch is not only a professor at Northern Seminary right here in Chicago, he's also the author of a wonderful book, The Church of Us Versus Them, Freedom from a Faith That Feeds on Making Enemies. David, we mean it a lot. Thank you so much for your voice and for uh, taking time to join us. Guys, can, I just, can I just invite everybody to uh, join me on Facebook, Fitch, S-F-I-T-C-H-E-S-T. I'd love to have you follow me and join in these conversations anytime. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. You're one of my favorite followers. I can't encourage everyone enough to do that. Thank you so much for joining us, brother. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. Thank you. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Frow. So we open the show today talking about September 11th and the remembrances to that terrible day 19 years ago in New York City, in Washington, D.C., in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Uh, and just uh, if you if you missed that part of the show, you can go back and listen. But Ian and I talked about what it was like, what our remembrances are of those days and the weeks following uh, and I want to end the show again, focusing back on September 11th, 2001, as we as a nation remember. But I want to do it this way. Billy Graham uh, spoke at, uh, I think it was on September the 14th. So maybe three days later uh, at the uh, National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., there was a, a day of remembrance, a day of prayer. George Bush, who was the president at the time, he spoke, uh, but Billy Graham spoke. And uh, man, there's something really comforting about hearing the voice of Billy Graham here. Uh, and it's like 12 minutes long, but I just want to do about a minute and a half. I want to listen to a little bit of what Billy Graham said, because I was just reminded of uh, what it was like back then, uh, but also comforted by the words that he said. So let's listen to this about a minute and a half of Billy Graham here. Thank you, Mr. President, for calling this day of prayer and remembrance. We needed it at this time. We come together today to reaffirm our conviction that God cares for us. Whatever our ethnic, religious, or political background may be, the Bible says that he's the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles. No matter how hard we try, Words simply cannot express the horror, the shock, and the revulsion we all feel over what took place in this nation on Tuesday morning. September 11 will go down in our history as a day to remember. Today we say to those who masterminded this cruel plot and to those who carried it out that the spirit of this nation will not be defeated by their twisted and diabolical schemes. Someday, those responsible will be brought to justice, as President Bush and our Congress have so forcefully stated. But today, we especially come together in this service to confess our, confess our need of God. We've always needed God from the very beginning of this nation. But today we need him especially. You know, as I said, just something about hearing the voice of Billy Graham is that there's just something about hearing that that voice again that that kind of stirs up some memories. Yeah, I was I was just thinking the same thing actually. I it's been a while since I've actually listened to any Billy Graham at all, and I don't. I think he might have played a bigger role in your formation than mine, probably, but. Yeah. Not much more. I mean, he he still was this kind of larger than life. And there's a lot of people and a lot of Christian celebrities that are larger than life that don't bring the same kind of comfort that he did. I remember there being an, a number of people around that time, all, all being from Billy Graham, the President Bush to, you know, you and I were talking during the break, even John Stewart from The Daily Show. Like I rewatch 
that opening monologue pretty much every year. And knowing again, you know, John Stewart's a New Yorker and is a comedian like that. That's part of what made some of that so somber because you're used to him, you know, telling jokes and yeah, I I go back and, and listen to a lot of these. You and I were talking to about the voicemails that people left loved ones from the tower or from the plane, those kinds of things. It is surprising to me and maybe it shouldn't be how, how chilling they still are 19 years later. Um, and that, that to me, I guess there's probably a number of directions we could go with that, but it, it really was, I was listening to them this morning, like being as moved by them almost from the first day that I read them or heard them. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Like what for you is the significance of the Billy Graham one specifically? Yeah. Like I said, I was, I, I wanted to end today with just that kind of one of the messages of hope. And so like you, I, I went, I was just on YouTube yesterday going through, I listened to George Bush's whole speech at the national cathedral and it was great. Uh, and I listened, I also listened to the John Stewart one mm-hmm. um, in, in that role. And I think for me, there is a comfort in hearing Billy Graham uh, again. There was um, yeah, there, there was like, okay, I remember this. But then what he even said there, and he had a way of just kind of distilling things down and, uh, you know, to bring it full circle, uh, to think uh, September 11th, 2001, but also to think now in the midst of a global pandemic that, you know, for whatever you think of it, has killed upwards of 190,000 people in our country. Um, to, to think about those kinds of things and to hear Billy Graham confirm, it says his conviction that God cares for us. There's a simplicity to that message, but you watch it on the screen and doing when, when he said that to these people who are just brokenhearted, you could just see the tears, but also the, oh, okay, God cares for us. And I, and I think that there's, that that is a message that I know back then we needed to hear, but I also think that we need to hear now that, that not only do we need God, but that God loves us and that God, you know, when those, when those planes hit the towers, it wasn't a sign that God was gone. That God had said, "Hey, yeah. oh, sorry, I'm, I've kind of left you guys on your own." Yeah. Uh, and in the pandemic, God hasn't said, "Hey, you guys are on your own." Uh, I don't know. For me, and then I'd be interested in your reply, your, your thoughts on what you heard. But for me, that message that God cares for us in the good times, but also in the times in the depths of the depths of despair, yeah. I think is something that I always need to hear. Yeah, and I, I think it's why we've talked a good deal on this show about the importance of lament, maybe more so now than ever, because. The Christian tradition historically has interacted pretty intimately with the full spectrum, you know, celebration and lament. And it feels like over the last hundred years, we've definitely veered much towards the optimistic and the positive, which can certainly have its place. I I remember reading a a prayer from uh, Pope Francis about September 11th, uh, a few years ago. If if it's all right, I'd I'd love to just read it. It's not long, but it for me, like offered so much clarity, I think around, around today. He said, God, so much violence, so much pain, so much heartache. May our memories of this day remind us of the horrors of war. As we grieve with those who still mourn and share memories with those who cannot forget, may we be stirred by your love and compassion for all. As we remember those who bravely responded and gave their lives to save others, may we draw strength from their selfless sacrifice. As we stand with strangers who became neighbors that day, sharing and caring for people they did not know, we give thanks for their generosity and hospitality. May it remind us of the call to be good Samaritans, reaching out across race and culture to other victims of violence. So many in our world have lost loved ones to terrorism and war. 
May their plight fill us with a longing for peace. Let us seek for understanding and reconciling and not turn from your kingdom ways. Above all, God, may we remember your faithfulness and learn to trust in your unfailing love. Amen. And I, I just always found that that prayer to be so helpful amidst all the emotions and all the all the noise and all the fear. And that that's kind of the, the prayer that I'm I'm clinging to today. That's really good. Thanks for reading that. I think that's a great way to end the show this September 11th as we remember both 19 years ago, but also even as people are going through things now, uh, that God still cares for us. That prayer right there was really powerful. Well, we hope that you've had a great week. Join us again on Monday when we're back at this from 4 until 6 p.m. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.